Hello and welcome to Film School Dropout. My name is Ben Friedman, film critic, and today's the big one. This is probably the movie I was most anticipating doing uh, in this entire series. And that's because it is the one that I studied in college. I mentioned it a while ago that I am a film uh, and cultural historian. And my focus was 20th century American culture because I love movies. Scorsese was a big reason for that love. And I spent a lot of time writing about John Hinckley Jr., about President Reagan's assassination attempt, and specifically the role that media slash politics blamed on taxi driver uh, for that cause. Obviously, you know the famous story. John Hinckley Jr. becomes obsessed with Jodie Foster after seeing Taxi Driver, leads him to shoot President Reagan in honor of Jodie Foster so that Jodie Foster would finally see him for who he is and see him as kind of this just revolutionary, however you want to call it. And that's the movie we're talking about today. I had a lot of exciting thoughts to share. I uh, am joined this episode with actress, filmmaker. She kind of does everything and she's so incredibly talented. Her name is Mariah Owen. She'll introduce herself in a second, but Mariah, this is actually a fun story about Mariah. Mariah and I, uh, she will be joining me for Casino. She recorded Casino with me the first time before we did Taxi Driver. So we have this far longer conversation about meeting, getting to know each other, et cetera, et cetera. You'll have to wait for the casino episode to hear that full breakdown. So that is just some context for you. These are being shot out of order, but I'm so glad that Mariah joined me for this one. She is also a big movie geek. She's a big Scorsese fan and thus, it was just great getting to spend time with her. This is one of the longer podcasts that I recorded. It is coming in at about an hour 45 plus, and it's a good one. This one is a heavy hitter. They're all good ones. I don't want to discredit them, uh, but I believe I'm pretty well thought out in this one. I think Mariah is extremely brilliant, extremely bright, and I, this just made for a really exciting conversation about one of the most controversial movies of all time and one of the most talked about movies. And the angle that I found fun is I thought we were able to approach this movie in a way that other people haven't been able to. When you're talking Scorsese, I always get a little nervous because there is just this idea where, am I going to be contributing anything new to the conversation? And I believe Mariah's perspective, my perspective, we were able to just have a really insightful conversation about a movie that is infamous for good and for bad. So we're gonna be talking about that right now. Thank you all for joining me here at the Film School Dropout, Film School Dropout, I know the. Thank you all for joining me for Film School Dropout, and we're talking Taxi Driver next. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. We're talking about one of the most infamous movies, not only in Martin Scorsese's filmography, just one of the most infamous movies ever made, one of the most controversial movies ever made, one of 
uh, the movies that has been fought since its release premieres at Cannes in 1974, 1975, and Tennessee Williams walks out in theory that this movie comes out. Uh, that it premieres at the film festivals. This is one of the most highly debated. This is one of the most talked about, and this is maybe the most famous film Martin Scorsese has ever directed. Is it dangerous? Is it not? What does that even mean? We're talking today, Taxi Driver, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader. Joining me today is my guest, Mariah Owen. Mariah, this is going to be a fun one, and I will just let the guests know, or not not the guests, sorry, I will let the audience know uh, that Mariah will be joining me for the casino episode, and just due to how scheduling works and when everything kind of gets figured out, Mariah recorded that episode pre-Taxi Driver. So we've already met, we've already had our conversation, uh, so Mariah, I won't have you repeat all of that, but I just wanted to just uh, introduce you real quick, and yeah, just kind of give a brief, like, description of who you are. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, for everyone listening, hey, I'm Mariah Owen. I'm an award-winning actor, writer, producer, director. Uh, I have my own production company, GT Productions. It's a Webby honoree. We've had stuff premiere at stuff. We've had films, <laughs> feature films premiere, South by Southwest, Sieges, uh, can as well. And our work can be found on Amazon, CBC, Netflix, uh, kind of anywhere where you find your stuff online. So I love uh, female-driven thrillers. I love great comedy. And more than anything, I love Scorsese movies. So I am super stoked to be here. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really glad to have you on for this episode because, I mean, this is probably the most talked about directorial effort of a director ever. I mean, it's Citizen Kane. It's Jaws. It's Taxi Driver. There's very few other films that are of this legacy. If we're talking about most famous films of all time, it's hard not to imagine Taxi Driver being on this list. And so I just kind of wanted to just start with this. One, I should just know for everyone listening to this show, I do apologize. My mic is not working. It do not know what happened. I tried loading up this morning. It died. I did not have time to fix it pre this. So I'm just using my iPhone uh, microphone to record. So I do apologize if the audio quality is a little weird this week. Hopefully it comes out just fine. Uh, but anyway, so before going into this taxi driver, let's just kind of talk about this because there's so much to dive into with this movie. Mariah, what's your relationship with taxi driver specifically? Ooh, that's a great question. I think that out of all of his filmography, you know, Taxi Driver is a film that made me think the most. And mm. in different ways, the first time I ever watched Taxi Driver, I was actually in college and I was in an auteur class on Scorsese. And I, you know, I had the first time I saw Goodfellas, I was like seven years old. I saw Casino shortly after. And this film was kind of, you know, almost, I don't say hidden, but it wasn't top of mind. And I grew up in a household that was so pro movies and so pro mm -hmm. the truth. And really things weren't hidden from me. Things were communicated and talked about. So I hadn't even really heard of Taxi Driver at first. And um, while that might sound ignorant, I think there's a lot of people coming up who, you know, this is not a movie that is suggested to them for a whole multitude of reasons. So I think that my 
how I view Taxi Driver, I think it was way ahead of its time. I think that, you know, the, especially with Jodie Foster, that it was such a, you go back and you watch Taxi Driver and it's almost one of those films that you rewatch and you see that it really jump-started so many people's careers because it was so risky, because it was so talked about and controversial. And I think that it was really the beginning and a shift of Scorsese's storytelling, you know, that was so powerful. Um, yeah. This was a movie, so I actually should just note, uh, this, we are recording this September 17th. Yesterday, Saturday, I actually ended up watching Mean Streets, which was a great parallel to talk about Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, because up until this point, we have Who's That Knocking at My Door? We mm -hmm. have Boxcar Bertha. Those are his first two films. The film's advertised as before Mean Streets. We finally have Mean Streets, which is puts him on a trajectory of sorts in the sense that he is at least now a filmmaker that people are pretty excited about. Mean Streets is maybe as not necessarily the financial hit of all time. It 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 cements a moment for Scorsese. And then he has Alice doesn't live here uh anymore between Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. That wins Ellen Burstyn the Oscar for Best Actress. And that's the moment. And I'm giving out this history because it's so important here is because Taxi Driver is the script that they have for years and they can't get it off the ground. They don't know who's going to play the role of Travis Bickle. They don't know exactly, and no studio really wants to take this project. You have Paul Schrader, who is writing this film, who, if you know anything about Paul Schrader at this time, he is, I want to say he's an ex-Jehovah's Witness uh, growing up. So he grew up a Jehovah's Witness uh as he, I think, as he went to college or basically when he became an adult, becomes jaded on that and kind of takes on the lone wolf persona that Schrader's films have been so enamored with. And then you have Scorsese, who at the time, uh, he's uh, he is, I believe, a director at film school. And I think he's NYU. Is, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's NYU. And the script comes to him. He starts seeing a lot of characters that he's working with, which we'll get to Oliver Stone in a second, but like, there's so much getting into this. They want to make this script. They can't. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Happens. Mean Streets happens in 73, but the key thing is that allows Taxi Driver to go is De Niro appears in Godfather Part 2 and wins his Oscar in 74, which at that point, De Niro becomes one of the hottest actors of all time, uh, just on a working streak. And that's where Taxi Driver's Inception all kind of comes to, to the point that we are now in the year 1976, I want to say, is when Taxi Driver is that's released. I, yeah, that's when it premiered. Uh, and it just, it be, it becomes a moment, to say the least. I mean, this film just, we'll get into some of the discussions that have been had on this film. But I think to come back to the point that you made, which is, this isn't a film that has been necessarily like a lot of film fans growing up. They're not necessarily suggest taxi driver. That's also, I think that's like largely due to the controversy of this movie. This is not, this is a movie that a lot of people have issues with. Like I know for a fact, like this was kind of one of the movies growing up that I wasn't necessarily like when I asked my parents about it, this was not one of the ones that they're like, Oh yeah. Like go mm -hmm. check this out. Like this was, this has a reputation 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, similarly with my, my household, as I was saying earlier, and I just, I, I think it's one of those films that you almost, and I'm not trying to, um, you know, be, be like, oh, you have to be an adult to watch it or be like, you know, if, but I, I think that if you're too young, when you watch it, your viewpoint can be skewed. And it's almost like you need to go out into the world, have some experience and then watch the film. And it really sits with you in a different way. Even the difference between watching this film at 20 when I was in college to watching it now at 29, you know, there were certain moments that I was like, oh, oh God, like that hit me more, you know, on a visceral guttural level or wow, I, I didn't really notice that before or how would that be shot today? You know, yeah. even just the difference in the last five years within our industry and within, you know, the topics, a lot of the work that I I've done, you know, we, it, it deals with highly sensitive subject matter, you know, MFA vigilante thriller about campus rape, daddy's playground talks about the sugar baby culture, all of those projects we've had, you know, intimate or difficult scenes to shoot. And yeah. we didn't, you know, had an intimacy coordinator for the last several films, from you know 2017 2018 on but prior to that it didn't so it's so interesting to watch you know watch this film which would have been shot you know 75 if it premiered in february of 76 and think how did they shoot this you know how how did this it, uh, and how would it be different today yeah no this this is a film i saw the first time i was uh, 13 years old Wow. I'm I'm confirming it in my head that I was 13. I believe I was 13. Here's how I watched it. Uh I had my uh gaming computer on one side playing World of Warcraft and I had Taxi Driver on the second side. I was leveling my character in World of Warcraft. I was in the Burning Crusade uh expansion of it, so I was in the World Nagrant and I remember specifically I had Taxi Driver on i think it would probably have been my ipad or my dad's ipad whatever whatever device i had on my right and i was watching taxi driver which i bought on itunes with a 15 dollar gift card <laughs> my grandma had sent me because my exactly because my parents could not regulate what my itunes was going out buying a movie I, they could kind of say yes or no right. buying a movie on itunes i was allowed to buy the 40 year old virgin at the age of 12 like that that was kind of the difference right like right totally. I, I have my own account like i know how to use my own account they're not really monitoring that as well yeah. so i get taxi driver pretty young and i i point this whole story out because i can't then understand the movie that i'm watching mm. you know I, I it's always this thing when you're really young right when you're watching a movie that you hear is so notorious so disturbing that's so violent yeah you watch it and then you're like what the hell is this like this isn't scary this isn't like disgusting like like you're almost expecting so something so graphically explicit that when it's the subtlety that is the creepiest part or the most disturbing part it goes way over your head and that's how, that was my relationship with taxi driver for a decade plus until i revisited this film uh in college and then th with this podcast and yeah, this is a difficult film to talk about. This one, uh, this one was very much in my studies in college. I wrote mm -hmm. about John Hinckley Jr., uh, the presidential assassination, uh, Taxi Driver, and King of Comedy in Scorsese. Like that was my big thesis paper. Was this subject essentially? So Taxi Driver, I watched a lot, and I obviously spent a lot of time with this character of Travis Bickle and what that meant. 
which is a weird mindset to be in. Totally. But I think it's, it's also so important. Like, I think that we, we live in a weird age with cinema and with storytelling where we're seeing a lot of the same characters come up, right? It's really comforting. We're seeing, you know, expansions on previous existing audiences. We're, you know, it, we're not seeing a lot of things that are super different. So I think, you know, to kind of look at this film as a case study in every aspect of filmmaking, you know, writing, directing, producing, acting, um, even the, the marketing of this film, the dissection of this film from a critic perspective is so important, you know, and, and to be in that mindset, because I really, there's not a lot of, we have a lot, sure, we have a lot of, uh, I don't want to just call them weirdos, but we have a lot of weirdos in our TV and film, you know, there's a lot of people that are these unique, dark and twisty kind of characters who have some sense of justice, but it comes from a very peculiar place, you know, our kind of backwards vigilantes, if you will. And I just think that it's, Sorry, my dog is my dog just woke up and walked mm-hmm. and walked across. We heard her her cute little feet, but um, yeah, you know, we're just living in a time when there's these we're not seeing enough unique characters. Yeah, my- it's so it's so interesting to like even think about Taxi Driver in the context of 2023, because yeah. if you think about where those characters are largely existing, our sociopaths, our psychopaths, are just kind of dark parts of america as you will that's all on tv really these days like it's true and glorifying them like i'm shocked in the rise and i'm not sure if you follow on tiktok but there's you know people younger than us <laughs> who are tiktok users and glamorizing some of these serial killers. Mm-hmm. and there's a whole like on you know on tiktok and i'm like oh my god why are we giving these people a platform you know or mm-hmm. even i look at with the show you with Penn Badgley, uh, Berlin, you know, it's a Berlanti production. I, I definitely binge watched it. I'm not going to be sit here and say that I didn't, but you know, he's come out and, you know, come out forward and said, Hey, like this is still, you know, I'm still, I play a bad character. You shouldn't be romanticizing or Mm -hmm. glamorizing this character and this portrayal. Like these are qualities we shouldn't admire in someone. These are qualities that should make us very perturbed. And I feel like taxi driver is just an accurate portrayal of that. And we're really seeing someone who isn't really all that likable and isn't really all that endearing. We kind of know that he's, he's off from the moment we meet him, you know, honest in that it's not, there's no sugar coating with Travis. So um the, the, the part that I find so interesting about this TV topic of where our where our sociopaths kind of live now in character stories, like because there is kind of the juxtaposition that you're talking about. We do get shows like the Jeffrey Dahmer show starring uh I'm blanking Evan Peters is uh who plays Jeffrey Dahmer in that. And then you also get ones that I think are in line with Taxi Driver, like Barry directed by Bill Hader directed produced like written like starring like bill Hader has mentioned and has talked about in length about how taxi driver inspired barry and you can see those elements like that is certainly there even breaking bad is probably quite similar in Mm -hmm. taste and the way it goes about its storytelling you can see the taxi driver influence in there it is this just kind of juxtaposition of what is a way to portray it and what isn't a way to portray it uh which again i'm not even i don't want to necessarily be the gatekeeper of what can and cannot be filmed that's not my job necessarily but like there is such an interesting aspect of the romanticization of 
sociopaths, dangerous people. And Taxi Driver has some of that because, admittedly, one of my first thoughts of watching the movie, and we can kind of use this to jump in, Robert De Niro is really good looking in this movie. I could not believe it when starting this movie. I like, I, De Niro has something so charismatically handsome about himself in this movie, and he carries himself in a way that I was just so blown away at this performance by De Niro that I had just kind of so long forgotten, which was the fact is De Niro is charismatic playing a completely anti-charismatic character. And it works completely in his charm in this movie. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's his performance is so good that the scenes when we finally get to Sybil Shepherd and they're like going on dates, you actually understand why Shepard would say yes to those dates. Like that is one of the most complicated aspects of this movie where you're just like, I get why Travis Bickle can exist the way he does because he's not this like, complete loner creep right there's something there's so much more substance to him it's just the danger that is always brewing in him is so apparent absolutely and i love i that's the most perfect way to break it down because it is so apparent and it's brewing but there's some type of understated confidence that comes from the loner complex right mm-hmm. you know that I, I'm, I'm in this world i know what i want i can do it i don't need anybody you know, and so then, you know, we come in with when he meets when Travis meets Betsy and it's almost this. I think we're like just as humans, we're drawn to people who are leaders. We're drawn mm-hmm. to people who know what they want and who have a vision and who are, you know, straight shooters and just say what they think. And, you know, what you see is what you get. And that's what we get with Travis and Betsy, you know, and I, I don't know how I would be if a guy came up to me today in 2023 and was like, do you want to have a piece of pie with me? I'd be like, mm. no, thank you. I'm going yeah, to go back to safety. But hey, I love pie. So it would depend on the situation, <laughs> I guess. But, you know, I, I think that um, it's such an interesting scene to rewatch, especially with their date, because it's almost like the kind of first grounded moment of some type of romance that we see Mm. in my opinion from Scorsese, you know, that's, it's sweet and it's endearing and it's just so contrasted with the rest of the film. You know, it almost feels like there's like two movies for me with taxi driver between his relationship with Betsy and his, you know, unwavering uh, desire to save Iris. You know, that's Mm. kind of how it's like, it's such an interesting split of a, of personality. Yeah. This movie, Taxi Driver, I find so fascinating because you talked about a little earlier about how when we view it in our lives can mean Mm -hmm. something completely different. I'm viewing it in college, like studying it. I'm studying the idea of dangerous cinema and what that means. And if a film can really be guilty of, essentially, in the case of Taxi Driver, the belief that it led to the assassination attempt on President Reagan. Like, that's how I'm focusing my narrative of watching Taxi Driver. Watching Taxi Driver in 2023, which I should note between me being in college in 2019, doing that research, to watching it again in 2023, we have a global pandemic that Mm -hmm. hits. And re-watching Taxi Driver, the aspect of the movie that I just, I, I always knew was there, but I actually couldn't believe how prevalent and how real it felt and how, how emotionally harrowing it was for me rewatching it was the 
isolation feeling of this movie where it is just someone just so trapped in their own mind that isn't allowed to have contact with the outside world. In the case of Travis Bickle, it's almost kind of self-imposed, but it's just that aspect of rewatching the movie post COVID and just feeling like trapped in your own head. Totally. Yeah. And the, the, like the, the need to connect with people Mm. also, you know, it was so mon- it's so monotonous there's so you know you're in a routine you don't, you especially for all of us during covid you know if you're able to work great but still you're probably working from home you know things were very different for you and if you didn't work like so many of us in the creative industries in the beginning you know it felt like okay wake up go <laughs> do, do you know do whatever during the day in, mm-hmm. and it it just was boom 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 there was such a small selection of things that you could do and it felt like a routine and it felt you're right very travis <laughs> travis bickle yeah no it's this i want to watching this movie i was just so blown away by that aspect of the movie i mean there i the isolation of this movie is pretty superb in just even the day-to-day just like walking through the streets and there's this kind of emptiness to everything like even the fact that there are it's new york you do see new yorkers walking around like it does still somehow feel like you are completely alone and this aspect of a big city and being alone is so much more psychologically disturbing the idea that you're in one of the biggest most busting cities of all time and you are still who you are and the aspect of this movie that i also find so fascinating was I actually listened to a Vietnam movie podcast that The Ringer produced uh, a few weeks ago. And so the aspect that I always forget about this is this is a coming home story. This is a story post-Vietnam about what is presumed to be a Vietnam vet who's returning and what that looks for life. And Travis Bickle is probably what a lot of Americans were feeling in 1975 when this film was shot 1976 when they were when it was released. I mean I, I mentioned Oliver Stone earlier and I think it's just an interesting thing to note that Oliver Stone is in Scorsese's film class during this time. Oliver Stone comes back from Vietnam uh you know he's a soldier serving there sees some just he sees Vietnam imagery. I don't know exactly what his involvement in Vietnam was, but he's a soldier serving on the ground. I think it's about 18 months. Comes back, decides to join film school, meets Scorsese in that class. I believe Spike Lee is also in that Scorsese taught class. So it's Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, Scorsese Mm -hmm. taught. Scorsese takes an interest to Oliver Stone. And one of the things that is so prevalent about Stone is he's very quiet at the time. He's very isolated. And he's always wearing that dark green army jacket, which is kind of the staple of Travis Bickle. So if if this movie is based ex- on design by Oliver Stone, I don't know. That's that's hearsay. That's that's only for Scorsese and Trader and Stone to really know. Yeah, you can definitely feel that influence of Scorsese working with other great minds and seeing brilliance in other people and making something real because Scorsese and Stone are friends and I didn't realize that they were in the the same class at at, at NYU and that whole first wave of filmmakers of film school filmmakers is so fascinating to me because they've really shaped our entire you know 
cinematic landscape yeah no they shape it for the next like through the 20th century easily like i mean like 1990s is all dedicated really to oliver stone and spike lee mm-hmm. uh tarantino of course as well but like those are really our true premier filmmakers at the time so talking with taxi driver the element that i found the most enjoyable rewatching this film was the score of this movie uh, the score of this movie the saxophones the low buzzing jazz score done by i'm, I'm getting the composer correct which i cannot find oh uh bernard herman this just adds to the world that we're in in this movie and the new york feel of this movie absolutely i i don't know why you know when i think of jazz music i don't necessarily think uh, of any other city i mean i i should think of maybe new orleans i should also Mm -hmm. think of you know memphis but i think of i i think of new york and it's so true and it's so timeless but it almost feels like music, music in several Scorsese films, to me, it at least feels like it could be its own character. There's moments where, you know, I feel like certain songs, you know, like when, when we meet Ginger in Casino, you know, uh, the song that's playing kind of pushes us into the into the world. But with oh. Taxi Driver, I almost feel like the score and the music takes a back seat at times and is this very interesting like almost like a fly on the wall character that's reflective of Travis in so many ways you know it's existing it's existing but it's not driving our story in a different way it's almost like observing and it's just being a part of the world you know but it has its eyes and everything and so it's a really interesting topic and I'm so glad you brought that up because when I was watching this movie I was like oh like there aren't necessarily the hallmarks of music that I see or I've experienced with later works of Scorsese you know um and did you find did you find that as well or did you feel like the music and you know the composing was truly an additional character within the film I found that it suited the character of Bickle I mm-hmm. think would be the best way that I would describe it. It does feel, and I don't know how to actually put this to words, it does feel late night. Like, right. it does feel like 1 a.m. type music that you would hear as you're passing clubs in New yeah. York, in any big city. Like, that is the kind of atmospheric tone that this whole movie has. I One of the aspects of this movie that I, I think is just so brilliant is the scenes of the score playing alongside Travis Bickle as he's just driving through New York because he's uh, having bouts of insomnia and that's why he decides to take a taxiing job. Like that moment where he's going through, you hear the score coming in and he's just driving through New York and you have all the bright lights. Like it almost feels, I wouldn't say dreamlike per se, but there is something almost airless about the quality where it's just like it, it it's so vacuumed in it's so specific and it's so specific in the way that it has to be lived in to understand that moment so right. you don't direct a scene like that with at least not being able to recognize and feel what it is like to be in that moment very true yeah, and that's what I that's what I love about Taxi Driver. I think the brilliance of Taxi Driver is the fact that Scorsese can empathize, relate, and find the sympathy of Travis Bickle. Because there is a way to do this movie where Travis Bickle is the 
horrible, terrible person that we'd never empathize, that we'd never care with. We just see him being a cruel man for cruel man's sakes. Mm -hmm. And that's the movie. And it's explicit. It's violent. It's disturbing. And that's the only purpose of the movie, which again, I'm not saying that those movies do not serve any point. But the fact that we understand this guy a little bit more is where this movie becomes interesting. For sure. And I, I think that there's something so beautiful in that in the way that we're able to just coexist. And, you know, like we we're saying earlier, he's not sugarcoated. He's not glamorized. He's not romanticized. He just he shows up and we get to see, you know, we get to have a little sneak peek into his life. And I think that that's what I love most about Scorsese filmmaking, you know, especially with any of our lead characters or even our lead female characters. You really see the good, bad and the ugly, you know, yeah. <laughs> And you empathize with them and it's just all these aspects of being human. And, you know, it's really blurring the lines of, you know, what is just and what isn't. And um, I, I definitely experienced that while watching Taxi Driver. And it sounds like, you know, obviously you have as well. And being so, it's interesting because I watched Taxi Driver in college and I think I, I wrote a paper on it, but most of my work was within hegemon hegemonic practices and strong female characters within Scorsese. Mm. So I was pushing into you know, Goodfellas, Casino, going into Wolf of Wall Street and kind of talking about, you know, the hypersexualization of these characters and, and women using at times their, you know, their flirtation or or sex as a, as a currency or as a power, you know, to kind of decipher what they want or get ahead in their lives, which I found to be a really interesting quality because typically women are villainized for it. And so Taxi Driver is such an interesting movie to watch for me because you you know you, we obviously have Sybil Shepherd and her character of Betsy is you know a woman who believes in things so strongly and you know she's so in, I don't say so involved in politics obviously she works in the office mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily see women like her in other mm -hmm. Scorsese movies which I found to be interesting and she she's with us and then she's gone you know and that to me was such an interesting connection you know i think it, 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 it we learned more about travis with that relationship than we did about her you know she was kind mm -hmm. of for me she was kind of like hopped on the train went to stops and then got off and then the movie went in another direction and that's how i perceive taxi driver a lot of the time um which i think also really contributed to his character development you mm -hmm. know and him still thinking about her or not understanding and feeling so alone um but it was it, it's an interesting movie to look at from my perspective of being a, as a woman, but also typically working on projects that are female driven. So when I go and watch some movies, especially ones that came out before, you know, 2000, I I think I'm almost hyper vigilant in the portrayal of women mm. and then get really excited about, ooh, like she's not necessarily an archetypal good woman, you know? Mm -hmm. The, all of these women are multifaceted um yeah so that, and i mean we have a whole other other conversation we have to have about jodie foster as iris of course um, yeah so can i can i ask you a question and this is this is my theory to why civil shepherd kind yeah. of drops out of the movie and let me know if you think this holds any water or if you disagree how i how i interpreted civil shepherd's character kind of leaving is that it's a conscious choice to make it clear that this is not Betsy's fault that Travis Bickle falls into essentially 
madness. Like that was like the definitive point where it's like, if we have her brought in anymore, does she get villainized for it? So we leave her at the perfect point where she is essentially kind of allowed to exit the film and we feel bad for her. And she is still, you know, if, if the romance goes any further, does she become so close? Does the audience now only view Betsy through the context of their relationship with Travis Bickle romantically? If, like I said, I, that's how I almost understand that moment. And I want to know if you thought that made sense. If you maybe if I'm giving Schrader too much credit, because in fairness, I may be giving Schrader a little bit too much credit with writing female characters there. That is such an interesting thought, because to be honest with you, I don't really care for Betsy. I don't. And it's it's an interesting, like, um, you know, if I heard the story, you know, obviously if it was real life and I heard the story, I would have sympathy and empathize and be like, oh my God, what a weirdo. Like, that sounds like a terrible date. But when I'm watching, I almost, I find her, there's something about her that's like, she almost, she doesn't know herself well yet. And I find that she's, mm. she leaves because she's so uncomfortable with all the things that Travis is comfortable with. Like she can't be alone, but she also can't face some of the, you know, the the hard questions. And that's how I feel about her. I feel like she's very surface level. And that's also a great juxtaposition and a contrast and an opportunity to learn more about Travis and why he is the way he is, because people only can meet them, you know, go as deeply as they met themselves. Right. So mm -hmm. it seems like she's a very, I kind of like, like, like the feeling like everything in her world is, I feel it like comes very easily to Betsy. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like she's used as kind of a, a, a I don't say a device because it has such a negative connotation, but when we compare her, you know, even just at a, a really loose, distant standpoint to Iris, you know, Iris is a child already, you know, having to fend for herself in a world that is absolutely horrific. And then you have, and she's, you know, a tough cookie and surviving. Mm -hmm. And then you have Betsy to me, who comes off as a very weak character yeah. in so many ways who, you know, has the, oh, poor me complex or I can't believe this is happening to me. And it's just fascinating to me because those two women, and I love, I love complicated women. I do. I will watch complicated women until the end of time, you know? And um, it, it's just, I find, I find Betsy's character frustrating, even, you know, accepting the date with Travis and the interactions. And we have that cute moment that we we're saying is really kind of, for me, at least the first time I really kind of saw a little bit of sweet romance, you know, mm -hmm. or a cute little rom-com moment in Scorsese's work. And then you know, obviously the scene at the movie theater, I wouldn't want to watch that either, but you yeah. know, I think it felt like I, I try not to, and this might be my own personal preference. I try not to ick somebody's yum, you know? So I just think that that scene just kind of felt to me like, Ooh, like there was another way to handle that. And I think that if Betsy had, it was just, she's at a stage in her life. That's a little bit different. And so I think her character served Maybe this is what it is. I think her character served a lot of other characters and a lot of the story, but didn't serve herself. I found so, her to kind of be like a a device. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's probably the correct way to look at Betsy because Betsy is interesting uh, in the aspect as well that like strip, strip gender out of this conversation. The idea of someone working in a political office 
-hmm. and then like kind of not understanding the politics speedier <laughs> politics of their landscape of new york right. that is an interesting discussion where you know we talk about iris who is very much self-aware and living in that world even travis is self-aware and living in that seedier aspect of new york there is this kind of blind eye quality that betsy has where not not necessarily new york elite is not the right word but just she gives off the energy of like we don't go to that part of new york like totally. that's not my scene and like that's not what i'm concerned about and we ignore that and right. that's the aspect of this movie that really works because travis kind of blows up at her for that reason like he has a monologue at one point which is essentially saying like i, I and i forget exactly what the monologue is but it can kind of be summarized as like you treat me like trash totally that whole scene when he storms into the office, you know, and I think it's it's true. It's like people aren't, and it's, well, maybe this is what it is. People aren't replaceable, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that Betsy kind of navigates in a world where everything is replaceable, you know? And I think that you, that says so much more about her than it does about any other character in the film, you know? And mm -hmm. I think that, oh, I'm so interested. I, I love getting to chat with you because I always think about things differently. And <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, and I mean, I'm not growing to um, love her character, but I definitely feel like I am um, beginning to understand her in a different way. The aspect of Sybil Shepard as an actress that I find so interesting is Shepard has always been an actress who I feel like can get miscast really easily. There was kind of this, like, I, I wouldn't say like, turn against Shepard at some point but I for instance what I will say is I think Shepard is best used when she's in Moonlighting opposite mm -hmm. Bruce Willis and yep. Scorsese actually understands that dynamic correctly as well that I think when Shepard is set up for best is because the aspect of her and Albert Brooks going up against each other in the office is the vibe where she I think feels the most natural in this movie and again natural because she's probably at her ease at her ease uh especially when she's not around travis but i also think that's when shepherd is most comfortable as an actress i know she's worked with a lot of incredible directors and i i and i there are even new york films and stories that she's been a part of woody allen she stars in uh i'm blanking on the title of that film right now but like shepherd is a very hyper specific actress mm. that just kind of struggled until moonlight was moonlighting was really her second career come up in to the degree like that was her revival right. she does taxi driver uh she works i think consistently through the end of the 70s and then she kind of just has this like five to eight year range as an actress where again she's still an actress she's still appearing in scenes but she's kind of the worst fear that any actor or actress has they're working without being famous to a degree like they're just not on the spot spotlight and and it's so weird that to me i'm like that's my dream i want to be a working actor i because yeah. you know, it, it's it's interesting because i i think because i do so many different things that's why i feel that way but it's true I, a lot of actors don't want to be forgotten about and especially at that time in the 70s, there weren't, you know, not a lot of multi-hyphenate. So I think especially as women, um, I definitely have to go back and, and you know, kind of uh, review a bunch of her work. But yeah, I think too, there's, you know, kind of a curse 
on female actresses when they play an unlikable character you mm, know when you, when you sure. play, yeah and then that that's the character and especially a film like taxi driver i mean obviously it was shot 75 premiered 76 it's 2023 and we're still talking about it you know so it's like for the last almost you know 50 years we we've been dissecting or attempting to of this film and i think that's a film that really follows people around who were involved in it like a shadow and it can be really great and then it can also be kind of problematic because if that is the one thing people know you as or the one thing people talk about it gets so repetitive and it almost becomes like a, a hurdle you can't get over mm. yeah the the shepherd conversation is so fascinating and also in the context of everyone else in this film and who's making films in new york in the 1970s what i just find and this is my just history brain turned on post vietnam ending new york is kind of like to me at least the center of culture in america at that time and we kind of define all of 70s culture through the lens of East Coast, especially because Washington, D.C. is Washington, D.C. with Nixon and Vietnam. But definitely New York is kind of almost where it feels like the issues that and corruption of D.C. is hitting right. New York. And we feel the context of that in New York. I mean, just to kind of rattle it off, 75, we get the premiere of Saturday Night Live. 76, yep. we get Taxi Driver. 77, we get Annie Hall. Like, those are like three staples of how we kind of view new york to a degree like totally. even to we, this day sorry what was that Sorry to cut you off but i was thinking how we view storytelling you know yeah no oh, especially and then like even in this film like albert brooks exists and that becomes a very important you know city-based storyteller and I, that's the aspect of this movie that i just that's the part that grow being a cultural historian in college like that's the aspect of new york that i just find so fascinating how the world of annie hall and woody allen's new york pseudo intellectual liberalism can exist in the grimy underbelly of martin scorsese's taxi driver like that i just find so fascinating for sure. And I, I mean, it, it, we have all of that. There's all of these duplicities, right? Like we, and it's interesting because throughout history, that's been a, that's been something that hasn't wavered. You know, mm -hmm. we just like to kind of look away from the things that make us uncomfortable. And I think that Scorsese is so great at, you know, finding ways to force us to look at those dark underbellies and look at those kind of uncomfortable moments or people or situations. Yeah, it's he has a fascination in the idea of the boroughs, right? Like the fact that like New York is literally divided amongst sections of itself that all have their own. I mean, he's explored multiple boroughs, Soho being an after hours, uh, the Bronx, you know, he's explored Manhattan, the Wall Street district, of course. Like he has such a fascination of how are all of these ideas somehow able to live in this one single location of new york and bringing it all back to taxi driver i i think this is probably the moment where we should really start talking about jody foster in this movie yes. uh jody foster I, I i'm trying to remember how old she is in this movie she's born in 62 so well, that means when she's filming yeah she's 12 when, when she's filming this movie yeah i just 
this is an incredible performance. I mean, just straight up, like, best performance a child actor has ever given in a movie. I mean, I, I, I think that's the range that we're talking about. And I'm not saying it definitively is, but the fact that we're, I'm able to confidently say she's in that discussion, it's a testament of performance. I don't know how you achieve. This might be the best Jodie Foster has ever been in a movie. And she's 12. It's and a, a movie of that I think will, sh- you know, will must have shaped her for the rest of her life. You know, I think already to be in a position to play that character, you know, you. Ah, it's so hard because I want to I'm like, it's amazing. She's so mature in this performance. She's so incredible. She's so strong. She's all of these things so digestible as a character. Then mm-hmm. I have to constantly remind myself she's a child, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's to me is just like it's it's so hard because in our industry i i love working with kids i really do and i've been lucky to you know get to work with some really talented actors um and i'm really trying to be cognizant of the the performances that i put them in the stuff that we write the stuff that i produce you know because that that experience will shape them for the rest of their lives and i can only mm-hmm. imagine you know this set her on a trajectory that was monumental for her career but i'm sure very challenging in her development as a as a human being yeah no this is a weird role to take on obviously for what happens post taxi driver i think is probably explicitly where some of these psychological damage was at its most but i mean jodie foster has also like talked about the things of like what martin did on set to make sure she was safe and i think that's the big distinction because even if you look at two actresses of that same period who you could call were on similar trajectories look at Jodie Foster and the career that she ends up having and the essential like you know just her day-to-day life and just psychological well-being especially growing up versus that of Brooke Shields I was just uh, I literally this, just looked up Brooke Shields because I was like, I think they're the same age. I think they're yeah. maybe like a year or two apart from however old, but I mean like Pretty Baby is I think 77 or 78, which again, if you just look at the content explicitness of those roles, and also like not only that, like I think really the big aspect of this movie is how one director treats their actress how the other one doesn't protect their actress absolutely that's a huge aspect of this because obviously the john hinckley jr is completely out of scorsese's hands right there's only so much you can do what pretty baby is this is i mean that is exploitation really and it's like clear-cut example and that's the that's the damage because there is an element of taxi driver that if this was a rambunctious set, if this could have been in any way, you know, this could have easily been a very dangerous set and a very predatory set for a Jodie Foster to have been on. If Martin Scorsese, and I think this is kind of the role people forget about directors is they think, oh, it's always behind the uh, camera. The director is the captain of the movie. Like he is, he sets the example. He or she sets the example. He, in the case of Scorsese, sets the example for taxi driver and you know had he not set an example this would have been this could have really been psychologically damaging damaging in a way that more than it probably already is for sure and i think that that's something like you know he has a reputation for how he 
you know, treats his cast and crew that is really remarkable and almost unheard of, you know, especially for a director coming through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And I think that that is something that people don't commend him for enough, you know, and I, it's just so fascinating to me because directors definitely are the captains of the ship and they set the tone, but it's also your producing team. And I think, you know, you look at his crew who he's worked with continuously for decades now, you know, Oh, half a century, you know? And so looking at that and seeing, okay, you are who you surround yourself with. You are who you, you know, you're only as weak as your weakest link or strong as your weakest link. And so I think that he's always had such an emphasis on quality, you know, and how you treat people. And that's really shown in his films. Like I, even watching the uncomfortable scenes with Jody in Taxi Driver, it's uncomfortable, but it's not one of those scenes. And again, watching it with, as a filmmaker, trying to think, oh, how would they have shot that? I never once felt, um, I mean, obviously I'm uncomfortable and I'm frustrated by the subject matter, of course, but it wasn't something where I felt like based on how it was shot, that she was in danger. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll just say as a film critic who has had to discuss some of these topics, like uh, any film critic that says like, oh, you can detach the art from the artist is a complete liar. It's impossible. Like, it is straight up impossible. You can go into a film and review it and give it as objectable as you want, uh, or objective, subjective, however you want to review it. Like, that's completely fair. And you can pretend you're doing it, and maybe it doesn't, certain cases don't. It is always a case-by-case example. And it is something that you have to either overcome, get through. But anyone who's like, oh, I can completely ignore this while watching a movie... You can't. And I, I think that's the element that allows Taxi Driver to exist, because if this story had ended up differently, if this set had been, I don't think we view Taxi Driver in the prestige that it has gotten to live in for the mm-hmm. past 50 years. If this was the basically case gone wrong, especially in the case of Jodie Foster, this movie doesn't get to live in essentially favor. I mean, I, I hate I've already said his name way too many much many times on this podcast. It's kind of like Beetlejuice at this point. But growing up, I'll, I'll share it. Woody Allen was is one of my favorite filmmakers. Like, and that's really challenging now because I cannot watch any Hall. I yeah. cannot watch any of those movies without thinking of that. Like, it is impossible. And I can pretend like you know I can pretend that I, like that doesn't necessarily even mean that I don't even think these films are still of significance or greatness but that does it is very coloring when alan talks about the subject matters that he talks about that's really challenging and personally watching scorsese is one of the great things about taxi driver is that i just don't have that ickiness in that element of this movie because that would really color my opinion of taxi driver that's an epic point, you know, and, and it's so true. There's certain films or think about music. There's so many musicians now that you're like, oh, I don't want to listen to the repertoire. Like, I don't want to know, like, I don't want to support that. Or I don't, you know, and that's something mm-hmm. that we're really seeing. And it's interesting because I wonder if Taxi Driver, and I know we were kind of talking about this before, if Taxi Driver came out today, I I wonder how it would be. I almost, I I feel like I'm shifting my perspective. I almost feel like it would be celebrated more in some aspects um than it was back then because I think you know people were so they like to have everything behind closed doors they didn't want to talk about those subjects they 
And it was all happening. You know, all those filmmakers were, you know, telling stories at the same time, our Me Too movement, just the world in general. And so I wonder now, since we're significantly more open of talking about these issues, especially with children, and especially, you know, with our vets, that maybe the conversations would be different and the film would be celebrated and would be more widely appreciated. What do you think? Yeah, that, it's a challenging question because I was I watched Sundance virtually this year. And I I don't know if you've heard about this movie slash if you were there. There is a movie that exact basically exists within the taxi driver realm of movies. And it was called Magazine Dreams. Uh, it is about a bodybuilder yeah. uh, who's basically, he wants to be the best bodybuilder. He's taking steroids and he's an extremely violent and deranged individual and kind of what that leads to. The reason I was so interested in this movie when I saw it in January, and I, I've already shared my review of this movie, so I, the aspect of this movie that I thought was so incredible was the fact that Jonathan Majors played this guy, and I thought he played the role pretty brilliantly. Uh, obviously, the challenge of that now has been what we've kind of come to discover uh, about Majors with his arrest post-March. That challenges it. The reason I bring this up, though, is because I was really curious to see how the reception of this movie fared with audiences, because, you know, Majors at that time was a really big actor, like I, it it was so in vain with Taxi Driver that I was like, it wasn't the Joker quality of 2019 where it was just like, oh, what does Joker look like? Oh, where it's just like that. Like this was like, okay, this is an actual prestige actor. Not to say Joaquin Phoenix isn't, but like this is a indie storyteller closer to the vein of Taxi Driver that tries hitting on it. The points, and while I don't think the film is anywhere near as successful as Taxi Driver, there is a central performance that is kind of the big part of this movie that is going to be discussed. So that was the aspect of it that I was really curious to see uh, gone. I don't know. I really don't know how people would react to a taxi driver coming out in 2023. I don't know if there's a case example. That's true. I mean, excuse me. I would say that we probably have the most in your face explicit content today mm. <laughs> almost to you know just looking at the shows that i watched growing up or like you know the the shows that were kind of popular among people of our generation you know um I, I, my only example it's coming right top of mind that i couldn't believe like okay so i grew up watching the oc okay Mm-hmm. And now you think about Riverdale being kind of like sure. the next generation's OC and the differences in that and what they're showing and how, you know, these 15 year old people are, it, it it's so normalized within their culture of the things that they're doing, you know, the, their, their, their sex and their relationships and all those, they're not even having conversations about them. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like it's being shown, 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 shown in your face so aggressively that something like taxi driver i almost feel like people would still find perturbing because it's not a lot of show you know mm. or maybe I, what i should say it, it is it's more like kind of showing bes- like little little tiny bits that you have to string together to get your own opinion versus a lot of shows today that are so extremist in their topics and the things that they're you know they're highlighting kind of ram it down your throat in a way that's not digestible so it's yeah. weird you agree with that? 
I do. And I think there's also an aspect of this is what is movie lyricism right now, I guess, to a degree. Like, what do audiences want anymore? And I think that's kind of the question that Hollywood is struggling to answer, where is subtlety just kind of removed from the art of filmmaking right now for the past few years? I don't think it is, but there is a case to be made that the studios do see it that way, where subtlety is something that is Barbie and Oppenheimer, you know, not the example. You look at a lot of the other films they're concerned about making, and it's IP driven. And the fact is, like, yes, the case example for Taxi Driver, and I've been kind of not wanting to bring up this movie, but it has to be brought up at some point. Joker is what Taxi Driver looks like in 2023. And mm-hmm. I find that quite depressing to a degree. Ooh. That's fascinating. Like, does does Taxi Driver have to be made with IP storytelling in mind? I, and that's almost like I I don't know if it can be made. Like, well, we're without really, it, it's so odd to me because we're living in a day and an age that is so IP driven, but it's not new and original IP. We're telling pre existing stories. We're telling yeah. spin- we have the multiverse, you know. So we're relying on pre-existing audiences to push forward an IP. You look at Barbie, obviously Barbie's been around forever, pre-existing IP that's multi-generational. Then you look even Oppenheimer, anyone who's involved, who loves history, who loves Nolan, you know, you're, you're building off of that IP. So yeah, Nolan's almost the IP in that case. It's true. So and it's World a- War II and an atomic bomb are an IP to the degree in the exactly. studio sets. You know, so you you're building off of information that people already have and they're already passionate about or they're already interested in. And then there you have a whole other level of, you know, Nolan being an IP uh, and people wanting to be invested in the ways that in which he tells stories. So that's interesting to me. And I remember it was a stat. It's it's out. It's probably outdated now. It was in 2017 or 2018. It came out that there was over 150 remakes uh, or spinoffs of pre-existing yeah. shows or reboots of shows that had been, you know, dead in the water for 20 years. And so it's interesting to me because a show that I love that was a reboot, don't judge me for this, because obviously I love my wonderfully articulate Scorsese movies, but I also love some trash TV. And I rewatched, I, I watched the reboot of Dynasty. And sure, I yeah. actually really, really enjoyed it. You know, it was fun. It was poppy. There was quick wit. There was strong female characters. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. And I had absolutely no interest in going and watching the beginning, the the original Dynasty. Mm. You know, so it was weird to be a fan or similar with adaptations, right? We're seeing that within the world too. Look at a show that, you know, successful Pretty Little Liars. Those were the books I grew up reading. You know, when I was 12, 13, 14, the show came out and I felt like, I was like, oh, the characters are wrong, you know, versus I read all the books to Harry Potter And I loved the Harry Potter movies. So it's weird. I feel like with these adaptations or with IP, you can either really continue on and strengthen the bond of people that believe and support that IP, or you can really alienate them. So studios right now, I think, are in this weird day and age where they're alienating true fans and true supporters of the IP that made the IP so successful by, you know, then trying to control it or change the narrative or switch things up instead of being more focused on expanding that story and building the world around it. You know, I always give kudos to Marvel because I think they've done an epic job of how they've built their multiverse and made us care about characters that weren't really popular previously. 
Yeah, I think that, like I said, at least in the case of Taxi Driver, I I don't know if it could be made today. Just one, because I don't know if anyone would go after that. I also just like, I, it's the element, and we'll talk about this kind of to end the show, is like, who makes Taxi Driver? It would be, even be a question. Who is De Niro in 2023 that could do this role? And we'll get to that at the end. There are a few points that I, before we really, and I should just note that, like, I'm not doing a break-by-break breakdown discussion of Taxi Driver. This is one of the most written, talked about uh, shows, sorry, movies of all time. So, like, if you want to hear that, you can find that content easier. I'm more doing aspects that I think fascinate us. Mm-hmm. Uh, one element that I, we haven't really talked about is just kind of the actual story of this, which is, you know, Travis Bickle, Lonely, meets Sybil Shepherd, gets rejected by Betsy, goes on basically this really violent rampage uh, that involves a 12-year-old prostitute named Iris, played by Jodie Foster, the elements that I find so disturbing about Taxi Driver actually isn't within the original text of the film. It is what the film has become to a sense in the mainstream media. The fact that this movie is kind of hugely known and memed about is so weird to me. Like the fact that we all know me? De Niro, like for you talking to me, totally. like is a bizarre context to live in after you see Taxi Driver. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Because, again, and it kind of comes into this idea, and this isn't necessarily romanticization, of uh taxi driver messed up that word badly it's more of the aspect of just like it's just so weird like i feel like if you actually watch the film like people wouldn't be saying that as much like it's a really disturbing scene in the movie that that line comes in and i mean it is so iconic i'm not saying that i have never said you talking to me with the face with the (laughs) with the low like Yep. The shrug, like, sh- head tilted. Like, I've done it, of course. It's just, like, it is a weird thing that that hit the cultural zeitgeist in a real, in a really strong way. Like, that that's the defining moment of De Niro. It's that, or uh, uh, you upset Jigsy Cat Faka. Yeah. It's probably, like, the two moments so of true. De Niro's career that are talked about. And, and it's interesting, because I, I love that you brought that point up, because there's so many people that will dress like him for Halloween and haven't watched the movie. Boggles yeah. my mind. Or you look in neighbor Zach Efron. That's um, what I was about to point out. Like, which is a hysterical scene, by the way. So funny. But I it's interesting, you know, that almost introduced that, you know, portrayal uh without any, you know, I don't say without the desire to watch the film, but I think, you know, that that sound went viral on, I think back then it was Vine. I don't even know if it was on TikTok. Mm. But people still do that on on TikTok, on Instagram reels, and that's become something that people are like, oh, what's that from? what's that from? You know, you hear that saying and it's such a catchphrase and it's all about the hype, you know? And I think that's reflective of a lot of the films that we see now, like the success of Barbie was hype, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting. And then I, I know we were chatting earlier too, about like the top five performances. I just love the little connection between obviously taxi driver, Zac Efron portraying Robert De Niro in neighbors in that, you know, iconic frat boy scene and then them doing dirty grandpa together. Dirty it's, Grandpa is so underratedly funny. 
I agree. It's in one of my top five that I, that when you were asking, I was like, oh, that, that too. So I, it is so politically incorrect, like yeah. in a pretty shocking way. And I also find that movie completely endearing. Well, it's, it's funny to me because I think obviously it's not Scorsese, but I, even with, with Taxi Driver, there's a lot that I was like, ooh, ooh, you know, this is a whole other conversation in a podcast that I'm like, is this politically correct? But it was interesting because I mean, there's so many things that are not, <laughs> you know, you have a 12 yeah, year old, you know, prostitute in the film, but it was interesting, just the commentary on politics, on socioeconomic levels that were honest, but people would not talk about today. Yeah, I think the challenging part of like the idea of politically correct in movies or what that even fully means is that I think it's the thing Scorsese very much understands in Taxi Driver is that it is okay to show political incorrectness in a context, which I think so many, and again, this probably comes back to more of studios than it does filmmakers, because I think filmmakers are willing to tackle this because we've seen the opportunities where they are willing to tackle it. Greta Gerwig's a great example of someone who's really deal with politically incorrect scenes, especially in Barbie. Like in Taxi Driver, there is stuff that is politically incorrect. Right. And, but it's all within the context of what Taxi Driver is. And I think studios get nervous that they're like, if we show something politically incorrect, it is seen as us endorsing political incorrectness, which is not the same case, which is, oh. again, it's kind of this nuanced aspect of it. And I the scene that exemplifies this most, and it's actually like the moment where I just, I never realized this. I don't know how I missed it. Maybe I just wasn't familiar with his voice when I watched this movie uh, a lot in college. Martin Scorsese is in this movie and he is masterful in this movie. Totally. Like, almost to the point of like summing up what this movie is about. And it harkens back onto kind of this almost like Hitchcockian idea of like what rear window is and like spying mm -hmm. and keeping Tom and like mixed with what taxi driver is and, and who this Travis Bickle is. Yeah. The lack of connection. He is actually incredible in this. Like this is an incredible performance from Scorsese. You see the woman in the window? Do you, do you see the woman in the window? Yeah. You see the woman? So I want you to see that one because that's my wife. But that's not my apartment. It's not my apartment. You know who lives there? Huh? No, I mean, you wouldn't know who lives there. I'm just saying. But you know who lives there? Huh? A nigga lives there. And I'm, go I'm going to kill him. <laughs> it's, not it's a really just like uncomfortable scene and it may be the scene that makes me the most uncomfortable watching this movie I would because agree. he's not travis bickle he no. is by all case seemingly a well-adjusted well-adjusted quotes like individual living in new york who's not like living with nothing he yeah. seems to have wealth he seems to have a family and yet in the reality all he does in this moment where he thinks his wife is cheating on him i believe that's the scenario that he's brought yeah. into like he's just like he's fantasizing about shooting her and totally. the or her lover. But yep. that's the context of this movie. And I think it comments a lot on male revenge, fantasy, uh toxic masculinity, all those ideas. 
it's yeah. all within the Scorsese character, which is just when I saw this again watching this movie, and it, it, for me it was just because I, I, you don't. It's hard to recognize Scorsese in this because he's so young. Where we mm-hmm. have an idea of who Scorsese is, and he's got, he's got an incredible beard in this movie. Yep. But it's and just a great like of hair. <laughs> it's it is the it's the voice instantly that like it's that song like oh my god that's Scorsese in the back of the cap. But it's so frightening because it's so throwaway. And I think the aspect that makes it so scary to me while watching this movie, he's telling a random taxi driver guy this because he knows he can tell it. Because he knows, like, either this guy is thinking this or he is a male. So he understands this feeling of jealousy and rage. Like, it is almost like in the DNA of male characters in this film, in this period of time. And I guess to a degree, like, that is the discussion of male fragility, male toxicity, all that. That continue on today. Like, it all not stems from Taxi Driver, but Taxi Driver is very much commentating on that. Oh my gosh, we could do a whole other episode just on this topic alone. You know, and I think that it's interesting because it's like a a moment almost where these two individuals feel like they deserve ownership over women. You know, Mm -hmm. Scorsese, his character in the movie, obviously with his wife, and obviously it's, you know, a, a complicated conversation of the hegemonic practice of marriage, and what that means in Scorsese films, and also with Travis and his relationship to Betsy, you know, mm-hmm. how it's, it we we deserve control, we deserve, you know, we, de- not even deserve, we demand. I'm going to kill her, I'm going to kill her with a 44 Magnum pistol. I have a 44 Magnum pistol, I'm going to kill her with that gun. Did you ever see, did you ever see what a 44 Magnum pistol would do to a woman's face? I mean, it would fucking destroy it. Just blow her right apart. That's what I can do to her face. Now, did you ever see what it can do to a woman's pussy? And that you should see. That you should see what a 44 Magnum is going to do to a woman's pussy, you should see. We demand that connection. We demand. So it's a, it's so interesting when you pair that with male fragility and what that looks like. And you're totally right. Like, there's just such epic commentary on every aspect of our lives, you know, um, from gender, you know, gender, sex, relationships, socioeconomic levels, race, uh, politics, all of the things that we typically shy away from talking about in our everyday lives, Scorsese just jumps with both feet in and does it in a way that is a digestible, be respectful of some of some form that isn't you, you know, not putting, I feel like putting people down in a way or making other people feel uh, uncomfortable, but in a way that is somehow seemingly emotive and thought provoking, but causes conversation. You know, because we live now, people are nervous to talk to each other, nervous to, I, I see it in filmmaking all the time. You know, there there is a choice that could be made for this character and instead they stay neutral. And I just, oh. I really appreciate that Scorsese never stays neutral. Yeah, I want to like, I, I want to wrap up this taxi driver conversation probably in the next 10 minutes, but I think this point that you brought up is so important. So I am going to focus a little bit on it <laughs> because I, I have the same thought. It's just like, the the reason I also find the Scorsese scene so fascinating, right, is in the context of who Travis Bickle is, which is almost a character without an identity and right. gleaming onto the people. It's this reason why the senator is so alluring to it, Senator Palpatine. It's not that he actually agrees with the politics of Senator Palpatine. He merely wants to live an existence like Senator yeah. uh, 
Palpatine. And oh, I'm not I'm Pal Palantine. I'm like Palpatine. Yeah. That's Star Wars. <laughs> I'm like what? But no, he wants to live like Palantine, which is, you know. And then the scene where he meets Scorsese's character, the uh, passenger. Scorsese's a successful businessman in that scene. Right. Travis Bickle then understands that to be successful, like to be a successful male in society, we should live like this passenger is talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's like the context of like, if this was maybe someone else and they were much kinder and nicer, maybe Travis Bickle gleams onto that identity. But the question right. is, does that even exist? And in the context of New York post that, it doesn't. And of course, Travis Bickle himself is already prone to violence, being a PTSD survivor coming back from war. It's yeah. probably, again, we don't know exactly a lot about who Travis Bickle is pre us meeting him in Taxi Driver. There's some things we can infer. I don't think it's ever stated, and no, it is stated that he was honorably discharged. It's never stated actually which war. It's, presum it's presumed that it is yeah, Vietnam. No. And we're not sure where he is from. Now, the only inclination of where he is from is the pie that he orders uh, at the diner, which I'm forgetting the exact full. Uh, what is the. <laughs> what is the yeah, whatever the pie is, that seems to be a Midwest Southern pie almost. So I think it's like Missouri is where that pie. Hot apple pie is. with melted cheese. That's what it was. That's it with melted cheese. Like, that seems to be, if I'm correct from what I remember reading about this, that's, like, predominantly in, like, states like Missouri or stuff. So you can presume that that's such a specific order that he comes from a place like Missouri. Yeah. And he goes into war. He comes back kind of broken. And he goes now into New York, living as kind of a shell and not understanding the context of which he lives in. And... Scorsese to the degree that character colors it and it leads to what happens in this film which yeah, I do find it quite interesting and it's very specific in this film he tries to shoot someone of importance right like right. he wants to shoot a senator but what he can't and that fails he just has it all still in him so he now has to kill he now yeah. has to get it out of him so he goes for a little life pimp played by Harvey Keitel. And Keitel is, as Keitel almost always is, is wonderfully wild and deranged in a way that I can almost never identify when Harvey Keitel is on screen because I can never just tell that's him because he's so, he almost doesn't have an identity to me. Like mm -hmm. I can't really picture Harvey Keitel right now what he looks like. I can that's just picture true, him actually. in different roles. Yeah. He's and Swiss Trussese roles. Like, yeah, I can totally. picture him in The Irishman. I can picture him in Taxi Driver. I can picture him uh, in uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door, Mean Street. And yet I still just like blank out, like, what does Harvey Keitel look like outside of those roles? I'm like, I don't really know, actually. I also have a side thought. I know we have to wrap up, but I mm. have this idea. And tell me if you think I'm absolutely deranged, okay? So <laughs> I feel like Iris... I I almost because I you were asking me what film would I pair as like a movie to mm. Taxi Driver, and I used to always be like, oh, I love watching. I mean, I still do Goodfellas and Casino together. I love sure. that. But I would say if I was coming at it from more from an you know a, a academic academic perspective, I would almost watch Taxi Driver and then Casino, and I and try and draw some comparisons between Iris and um, Sharon Stone. 
I think there's a definitely a comparison because in the Sharon Stone character, we know how she kind of weaponizes herself uh, to her benefit and the empowerment that that gives. And I think yeah. Iris is, we don't exactly know where Sharon Stone character comes from, right. but it is presumed that it is probably a little bit of a harder upbringing. I don't know if it's necessarily streets in New York. I, I don't either, but I, I love the idea it almost like when I was rewatching Taxi Driver, I was like, oh, this is kind of like a really messed up origin story for Ginger in Casino. Oh, you know, I, the... I could see that. And I was like, oh, I was like, I kind of love this, like this new perspective or the eye that I'm trying to watch this through. And I can be so wrong, but just seeing the parallels of these two women who, you know, and again, Jodie Foster was a child, <laughs> but someone mm -hmm. who, you know, grew up, you know, Ginger was with Lester since she was 14. Uh, you know, um, Jodie Foster was 12 playing 14 in Taxi Driver. And so it's just those certain parallels of, you know, you grew up in a world like you lost your adolescence, you lost your childhood. And what does that look like? And how how does that help you formulate relationships? And interesting how De Niro plays characters in both of those films where he he saves them. But they're almost mm -hmm. women that don't seem to want or need saving, you know, interesting. Mm -hmm. I let's use this as kind of our last like topic of discussion for this uh for this taxi driver part of the episode, right. which is the ending of this movie, which it's been so talked about so much that I almost don't know if I can add anything to the conversation of the ending of Taxi Driver. But right. he goes in, it's a really brutal sequence where he just goes in, he shoots uh Harvey Keitel's uh wizard. Uh, no, not Wizard, that's Peter Boyle's character. Sorry, Sport is yeah. uh, Harvey Keitel. Goes in, shoots him. He goes into this a coma, comes out. He ends up being this heroic vigilante and is not prosecuted for the murders and yeah. receives a letter from Iris's parents thanking him, uh, returns to work, and kind of just goes back to day-to-day -day life, driving off with literally a smile. Like, he drives off with a smile, and I, that could have been the end of the film. And I think that would have been disturbing enough because yeah. you're just like, oh, he's out there. And it's just that final like second where it's just, you start seeing him get a little agitated and something in the rear view window. And it's that little agitation, which drives on the point that I just said of like, he's out there. Like he's out there and he's like, he now has almost, I think the interpretation of this would be a hunger and desire and want for this like vigilante justice totally that's like that's the that's the scary part of this where it's just like by the end he he's empowered to be a vigilante mm -hmm. oh this is so so fun to talk about and i vigilantes are some of my favorite type of character archetypes you know and i think that with this he almost seems untouchable at the end or like he got away with it, you know, but I think we, we know when we see that agitation at the end, that it's going to happen again. And he probably won't go, you know, get away with it next time. And so it's an interesting topic to also pair with him, you know, being returning home as a vet, he, and it, it, it's so hard. It's a bigger conversation with our, our, um, our veterans and PTSD and cinema mm. and how we relate that. But, you know, it's I almost view the ending of the movie for his character and character development as he found a purpose again. You know, he yeah, found that. That's purpose. how I feel. 
yeah, he saved, you know, saved Iris and, um, you know, overcame so much and it just start, it's very, it's, it's representative of a cycle, you know, so we're going to watch that cycle play out, play out, play out, play out. And, you know, it, not that I want a sequel to taxi driver, but it's interesting to think about that and let those thoughts percolate for sure. And I'll add my conversation on Taxi Driver on this one point that I think is so just parallels to Taxi Driver is in studying John Hinckley Jr., who I spent a lot of hours painfully like researching the guy. The one thing that, and it's not something I discovered, it was something that was known, but not a ton of people had made this connection in their writings or whatever we talk about the Reagan assassination attempt, even if you look at back at the New York times reporting at the time, it's not really there as much. John Hinckley jr. Is arrested in, I want to say it's 1978. I believe at the time I'm trying to remember which president it was, but he brought a gun to a rally to assassinate the then sitting president. I believe that case is... No, that's the the actual attempt. Uh, There's one that happens before. And I think it's President Carter. Now, he doesn't get far. I think he gets detained at the airport. And I think post that, the FBI finally realizes, like, after he shoots Reagan, that's what was Hinckley was planning. But he had the presidential assassination attempt in mind pre-Reagan. He was always destined to shoot a president. It just, it didn't matter that it was Reagan and it didn't matter if it was Carter sitting. And the fact of how much that relates to Taxi Driver and that's ending is frightening. Like legitimately bone chilling frightening. Oh, I got to look that up and learn more. That is eerie. Very eerie. Yeah, no, like, like the parallels of it. And I think that's why Taxi Driver is so infamous and was essentially put on trial uh, mm-hmm. for John Hinckley Jr. was like the reason this was shown in its full. Taxi Driver was screened to the jury in its entirety right? Uh, when they were convicting John Hinckley Jr. is they mm-hmm. were directly putting Taxi Driver on the stand for shooting Reagan. No questions about that. That is what happened. And that's why this movie is lives in infamy to a degree. Is some people still do see it that way. I'm sure Reagan, till his dying day, blames Scorsese for this assassination attempt. Not the fact that he discontinued mental health in the state that Hinckley was living in. Like he did discontinue it in California when Hinckley was living in California. That yeah. is the ripple effect of this movie, and that's why I find Taxi Driver so endlessly rewatchable because it is not just a staple of movie making it explains the 70s and 80s and 60s 70s and 80s in a way that i don't think any film has and i think it is still rippled in the effects that we saw of the previous president cutting mm-hmm. mental health care and villainizing mentally uh disturbed people it's all within taxi driver that's the legacy i have to go back and rewatch all over again with the new eyes <laughs> But it's true, like, you know, and I I know we're trying to wrap up, but look at our TV and film and media today. We almost have a a step-by-step playbook of these really, you know, scary acts. You know, look at so much of true crime telling you a step-by-step process, you know, whether it's Dahmer, whether it's um, Bates Motel, any of these kind of, you know, quote-unquote disturbing projects. 
And it's interesting. They don't get the same push, but I mean, Dahmer has had its whole other levels of controversy um, within the true crime realm and not notifying the families, <laughs> but oh. um, it's interesting. I don't think it's received the same level of, I don't want to say shame, but maybe blame that taxi driver has. Yeah. It's almost as if taxi driver is still allowed to be used as the shield where it's like all original sin comes from taxi driver. Mm. Thus, that is the source of all sin uh, is this film. That's all vigilante films that come posted are kind of True. allowed to exist without repercussions because they're not the ones that cause this. And I, they're I almost pale imitations. It's so interesting. My first feature, we shot two endings and one is where, so she's, she's a, a vigilante, uh, and she, in the end, she gets away with it. It was our original mm. ending. And then we shot an alternate ending. And we ended go on going with the alternate ending where she doesn't get away um, mm. in the same regard. So, oh, this is so interesting. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, we could do, we could do another, you. like, three hours on Taxi Driver pretty easily. But I think we can end our conversation on Taxi Driver, the film itself right there, which leaves a few questions, Mariah, before you mm. leave which I'm going to save the hardest one of them for last. And you already answered this first one, so I can start with this question, uh, just kind of reiterating it. What is an interesting companion movie to watch alongside Taxi Driver? Oh, I I think I'm going to have to go with what I was saying before. I think I'm going to say Casino, not to just oh. circle back to my previous episode, but I think that's really interesting. Or maybe like a Nightcrawler. Um, I feel like I want some dark underbelly of a of a of a perspective that I don't normally get to see. I am going to give true answers. Okay. The first answer is kind of paired. So I'm going to say King of Comedy, Scorsese's King of Comedy, which my favorite Scorsese film, just interesting. It's my favorite Scorsese directed film, just because King of Comedy is him commentating on basically what happens with Hinkley. Yeah. So I think in that degree, like it is very fundamentally important to understand Taxi Driver and King of Comedy together and how right. they coexist alongside each other. Okay. The more cynical, critical side of me would be like, watch Joker and Taxi Driver back to back and kind of just see, make make for your own judgment, how in one, how I view one as very successful and I view the other one as diminishing returns uh to a degree like what what makes one film very successful and the other no not saying that i think joker is a fine enough film but like i That'd think it's a pale imitation but yeah so that would be that would be kind of mine watch scorsese's filmography it's specifically king of comedy and mm -hmm. then one watch a movie that is very much echoing on taxi driver and what they do and do not do differently is probably the better way to describe it because it is very much working with the taxi driver parable and it is also doing its own thing and watch how that is juxtaposed to each other and see if it works or it doesn't work for you. That's interesting. That'd be a heavy double header, but I, it's I a rough one. To, yeah. <laughs> you got to buckle down. Yeah. And then the next question I have for you, uh, and we'll just do the three top ones that I had for you. Top five De Niro performances. Ooh, top five. I mean, obviously, I've said it so many times. I freaking love Casino and Goodfellas. Uh, well, Casino in particular, obviously. 
Um, I would say casino. Um, am I saying oh, performances or versatility? Because I, I would have- go versatility is an interesting one because I think that actually does lead into what makes him such an interesting performer. Okay, so then maybe I would say casino. Oh, but Taxi Driver is such an incredible performance too. Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> and Fuck. even, you know, I, I didn't love the film The Intern, but I felt like that He's was- a so very... underratedly good in The Intern. He is. So I think I'm going to have to say that, you know, it's just a, a softness that can, and I think too, you know, getting to grow up, we're so lucky to get to watch these films, but to also get to see him age in his career- and to grow mm. in that personal development, but career development, and just even the types of stories that he's telling, because you still see, you know, when I think of him, like Robert De Niro, I, I still see this dark, gritty, strong, um, you know, challenging, at times can be chaotic, but meticulous performer, mm. and yet to get to see a softer side of him in the intern and I just, I really, I love, I loved it. And I think it just, it just, you know, rang so true to me that he is one of, if not the, one of the most iconic performers I've um, mm. ever had. I will answer this real quick. Cause I will admit that uh, Isaac Feldberg came on my show for Raging Bull. So I already answered this De Niro question specifically. So I will reiterate, or I will change it slightly for my case. I'll do top five De Niro performances within a Scorsese film. So yep. I will go number five. I'm just going to do Cape Fear at number five which is a wild performance from de niro uh number four i will do uh oh gosh i think i'll go mean streets here yeah i think i'll go mean streets here okay number three i would go ah this is so hard because the it's raging bull taxi driver irishman i think i'm gonna go number three travis bickle taxi driver Number two, I'm going to go his character from The Irishman. And number one, I'm doing Raging Bull, which I think Raging Bull is one of the best performances ever put to screen. Yeah, I would agree with I, that. I think that's my order, which is taking out Goodfellas <laughs> and Casino completely, which I don't I, feel great about. Hmm. Oh, and I put out, oh, I took out King of Comedy. Ah, oh, crap. King of Comedy is definitely in my top five. In your top? Uh, yeah, no, King of Comedy might even be my one, so maybe bump out uh, Cape Fear and I'm putting Rupert Pupkin, a King of Comedy, probably at my number one. Uh, So then let's ask the hardest hitting question that I have for you that I don't know how we're going to do this. We'll spend five minutes and then we'll get out of here if that works for you. Okay, perfect. Recast Taxi Driver in the year 2020. Who would substituted for Robert De Niro, Sybil Shepard, Harvey Keitel, Albert Brooks and Leonard Harris. Leonard Harris being the politician in this movie. I took out Jodie Foster because I I don't I don't even want to touch that one. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because I think that there are certain performers that look really young. Like I would almost love to see like a Caitlin Dever play her character. Um, I loved 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 her in Unbelievable. Um, and I think she's like around our age. She is younger than me. I want to say if I'm 25, I think she's like 23. Yeah, let me look her up. Caitlin Decker. I love her. Oh, she's 26. Oh, she's older than me? I didn't realize she was older Yeah, than I think that she just has some really unique subtlety, groundness. She looks so sweet and innocent and young, but she can play. I I really, I think she would be a cool pick. Um, 
to kind of balance that, you know, growing up in a world where you're way too young to be in it, but you're, you know, thrusted into it. Um, could, sorry, can I, can I jump in real quick? Oh, I think course. the easiest way to do this, would we, we go one by one. So you and I both give our picks. Cause I'm like, actually, this might get a little confusing. Okay. So who would okay. you, you don't, so you're not, you're not picking an iris. You're out. I, 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 I opted out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't want that blowback. <laughs> I almost feel like, okay, so let's go with our Travis. I remind me who you said when, when we, before we jumped on this podcast, who, Tra- who did you? Travis Mickle, I guess we should start with him because he is the central figure of it. I'm going Paul Mescal because I think he's the only actor that could maybe play him. The issue is there's other actors that I could see doing it, but Adam Driver's too old. Adam Driver's 40. Adam Driver he, would be perfect. Way too he would old. Be, he's too old at this point. When he's coming up at like Force Awakens 2015, I think he could have done this role. So that kind of leaves the case of there's not a lot of great young actors that I think could do this. And so I'm like, Chalamet's too pretty to do it. So I'm kind of going Mescal. I I love, 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 love that choice. I don't know why. I feel like there's like, and I know we talked about it. Like there was something so attractive or kind of sexy about Robert De Niro in this film, even though he was playing such a loner, undesirable character. I almost could see like an, an obscure casting choice. I feel like would be like a Jacob Elordi, you know, coming off. He's interesting. Like, he has that kind of like bad boy quality, but also could be a bit of a weirdo loner. And then he's also not bad to look at and he is a good actor. So And he's about to just prove himself in the next two months. I mean, I think he has yeah. Saltburn and Priscilla coming out. Crazy. Crazy, crazy. Which I like that pick. That actually in like three months you might everyone might be like, that's the pick. Yeah. Uh so we have the Nero, we have Foster. Uh Let's do this next one, which let's do Sybil Shepherd. Okay. I... Amy Adams was my pick. She's too old. She's too old for this role. She this actress needs to be about 10 years younger than Amy Adams. But I think Amy Adams would, would be the right energy for this role. Oh, that is exciting. I I think um maybe like a Brooklyn Decker. I almost see like mm. Brooklyn Decker. I really, really, I think because A, she's so politically inclined and I love listening to her commentary, but she's A, she, you know, she, she was a model, she's an actor. Her comedy is quick, quick, quick. Um, Obviously represented on Grace and Frankie, but I, I think that there's some type of like, she gives like an elite energy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to call it, say like she's an elitist, but like there's something about her that has that upper middle class vibe does, yeah. is representative of, of Betsy. I was I also like thinking Brosnahan, Rachel Brosnahan from uh, Marvelous. I yeah, think she can kind of give off the quick wit of it. Yep. Which I guess paired with that, guy we didn't actually give enough conversation for in my discussion of it, which is Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks is kind of the interesting one because he's actually really integral to this movie because he's really our comedic relief through it at times. So who does who plays Albert Brooks? I almost feel like we need like a um a Pete Davidson or like a some someone that we want to like we want to I don't say want to hate but is charming but you don't trust you know like he, be... he I think the thing that works so well about Albert Brooks is he's not 
necessarily the oh, Albert Brooks. Sorry, Tom. Not sorry. I'm I'm thinking of Harvey Keitel. My bad. Oh, oh, sorry. No, yeah, uh, Albert oh. Brooks paired. Ooh, maybe like a John C. Riley, but he might be too old too. I C. Love... Riley is actually a really interesting choice. Like you a see... younger C. Riley. Mm-hmm. Like, and we what's the film? It's Ezra Miller, Tilda Swinton. Um, uh. We need to talk about Kevin or there's something. Oh, sure, sure. sure. I don't remember the exact title, but yeah, I know yeah, what you're talking about. That film. Oh my gosh. John C. Riley does not get enough credit in that. That was one of the first films I really saw him in as a dramatic performer. And uh-huh. there, he, there was just so many, you know, flashes of emotion behind his eyes that, you know, we don't see in Step Brothers. You don't get to see in, in Talladega Nights. So I think he might be a really unique choice. Um, how about you? Who do you think to, to uh-huh. play? Like I said, Albert Brooks is such a tough one because he is the comedic relief and he's so important to the film because, yeah, he has this back and forth banter with Sybil Shepard. And it's also a back and forth banter and charm that Travis is very jealous of. And he's very like, he's like, this guy is a threat. And it's again, Albert Brooks is not necessarily the most widely received as people's sexiest man, but he has that comedy comedic side to it. So you have to go someone funny. I was almost wondering if Mulaney's too straight laced looking for it. If John Mulaney could do it, I think you know who would do it. Bo Burnham. Burnham right. has proven himself to be a good actor, and I think he hits that charm where Mulaney just seems a little weird for that role, and I like it's a little bit too sticky in it. I think Bo Burnham could hit that level that I'd be looking for. Well, that's very exciting. I think I think Bo. So let's go Harvey Keitel, which I think at this point we just need an absolute freak. Yeah, well, I was, that's why I, I uh, Pete Davidson. I was like someone who yeah. is charming and charismatic, and but is like kind of can give you the ick, you know. Like <laughs> I think that that is something, um, and not that that Harvey Keitel is so charming and charismatic in this, but even in just the little moments, like buddy, buddy, the the quick wick back and forth, never really looking you in the eye. I think that Pete Davidson is underrated, and I think that his personal life has really kind of come to overshadow his. Mm career in a lot of ways and i think that he would be a unique choice it would definitely be a leap but i think that he would be someone that would be if we were playing it you know or recasting this movie in this day and age i would go for for him i think that there's a lot of parallels you know with his own mental health stories and, and issues that he's you know he talks about so openly and freely but i think it would be a really interesting dynamic with him involved then the last one, which I think is really important also to cover, is Leonard Harris, the politician. Senator Palantine. I think oh. this scene is so crucial because this is another really crucial scene is when Travis meets the senator mm. uh, in the taxi. A Taylor Sheridan. That's what I'm going to say. Someone who um, gives an air to him that is... Wait, sorry, who's the actor? Taylor Sheridan. So he um Wait, oh Yellowstone? God. Yeah, but he he's, he's an, an actor. actor. Yes. I didn't realize Taylor I, Sheridan was an actor. Yes, yes, for for a long time he um came out through Sons of Anarchy. Ooh. Oh, I did not realize that. Yeah. So, oh, I was okay. Him. How about for you? Ben Affleck. Oh, that's a good choice too. You you just need someone who is so charismatic but you also just know he's lying to you. Yeah. And yeah. Ben Affleck in Gone Girl is that character. You just have him play that character, and that's the senator. Yep. And I think he'd be incredible. So Ben Affleck's my point, uh, choice for that. 
and uh I, who directs this movie no one could direct this movie but scorsese i don't i don't even know if that's an answerable question agreed uh so I, that's I'm how we'll touch that as a as a yeah. potential um yeah. person to replace him for because i think he's just so irreplaceable Yes, uh, I agree. So I'm just going to skip that one. So that's the conversation on Taxi Driver. So Mariah, thank you so much for joining me for this really long conversation. I think we're close to two <laughs> hours for Taxi Driver, uh, which is good because this is the one that I really want to focus on because this is also where my studies align me with. Uh, Mariah, where can people find you? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I could talk about movies all day long and I love chatting with you, uh, but you can find me everywhere on, at Mariah Owen, M-A-R-I-A-H-O-W-E-N. That's Mariah Owen. Um, or find me on my website, MariahOwen.com. And uh, yeah, thank you again for this opportunity to get to chat movies and chat Scorsese. Yeah, this was a really fun conversation. And uh, I really enjoyed having it with you. I mean, this is such one of the premier titles for Scorsese that I always want to take these episodes. I I take every episode very seriously, but I mean, like, these are the ones where I'm like, I got to make sure I rewatch this one as well as, as much as I can before it and wanted to do justice. And I think we did justice to Taxi Driver, so I'm excited about that. So anyway, guys, my name is Ben Friedman. You're from the Beniverse Movie Channel. Uh, we're doing this all month. At this moment, I think New York, New York will be a solo pod. Uh, New York, New York was a really challenging film to try filling because one, it's not crit critically loved. And two, it's almost impossible to find a copy of. Uh, I had to order this Blu-ray from the UK. Uh, and I hope it works for my Blu-ray player. I haven't even checked that yet. So maybe New York, New York will be completely postponed. I hope it's not. I will watch this film in some capacity. And I have a feeling it will be solo me. Joining me post, though, is real exciting. Raging Bull with film critic uh, Isaac Feldberg. And then I have a lot of great guests coming after that. Scott Mance for Color of Money, I know, is in there. Uh my friend Jason Alley will be there for After Hours. Uh, Meredith Loftus will be joining me for Last Temptation of Christ. I got a lot of great ones coming up. So thank you all for watching. Take care and bye-bye.